1: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
0: My favorite thing about working in healthcare is the people. This industry brings together brilliant, highly motivated individuals who are driven by the opportunity to make a difference. My name is Hallie Teco. And this is The Heart of Healthcare, a podcast where I'll be introducing you to the people on the ground, moving the needle in public health and medicine.
1: It's really the waste that comes out of the separate tank. It's like the raw sewage that come out of your body. It's the odor, it's the smell, it's the raw sewage that comes out of a person's body. That's what it is, there's no other way to explain it. Mm -hmm. That's what it is.
0: And that is all over your yard? Yes. That's Charlie May, a resident from Lowndes County, Alabama. She spoke to Katherine Coleman Flowers and her team about how she, like many rural residents of Lowndes County, lack access to adequate sewage and sanitation systems, exposing them to various infections and illnesses. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to Katherine Coleman Flowers, the founder of the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice. She's the author of Waste, One Woman's Fight Against America's Dirty Secret, Catherine has been called the Erin Brockovich of sewage for bringing about awareness of the crumbling infrastructure, causing toxic sewage spills in the backyards of poor rural communities. In 2019, she testified to Congress to address the diseases associated with poverty in the U.S. And in 2021, she was appointed a member of the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. As I always say, most healthcare problems have a root in social justice, and today we'll talk about Catherine's work investigating the structural inequalities impacting access to sanitation and clean water. Hi, Catherine. It's great to talk to you today. I'm such a fan. I loved reading your book, and I'm really excited for
1: our conversation today. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, and thank you for inviting me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so let's just jump into it. When and how did you first become aware of the problem of inadequate human waste disposal, which you call, quote unquote, America's dirty secret? And when did you realize this was a major environmental, health, and social justice issue?
1: Well, in terms of the inadequate human waste disposal, I've always known about it because when my family moved to Lowndes County, Alabama, we did not have a a working toilet inside the home we actually had a septic tank, but it never went out on top of the ground. I realized it was a problem in 2000 when I moved back to Alabama and found out that people were being arrested because they could not afford on-site septic systems. And consequently, I learned about straight piping, which I had never seen before. You know, When I grew up, we didn't straight pipe. We actually had an outhouse, and you went to the outhouse, and you used a It wasn't a toilet. It was called a night pot that was used in the house or a slop jar that was used for the purpose of taking it out to the outhouse. But I think what happened is that regulations changed, and people start switching to cesspools, as they call them, and these other iterations of own-site septic, and they were very expensive, and a lot of poor families could not afford them. And consequently, they were straight piping. But that was how I first found out about the problem. And then later... As we did a house-to-house survey in Lowndes County, where we went to over 2,000 homes, and we found out that uh, it was more complicated than that because people were just waiting for someone to come in to ask them to share their experiences in terms of dealing with on-site wastewater treatment. And that's when we found out that the septic systems were failing. People that had paid for the sewage was coming back into their homes. And we also found out that people were paying wastewater treatment fees for these small town treatment plants and they were failing too.
0: Wow. So what's the magnitude of this problem? How many families within your county and then your state nationwide? how, How prevalent is this?
1: In the county itself, I would say that over uh two thirds of the county are having problems with treating wastewater, whether they are paying a wastewater treatment fee with a small treatment plant that that's decentralized or if they're on site septic they're they're having problems. Statewide I knew, I found out back in the early 2000s that it was in all 67 counties in the state of Alabama. Wow. Since since that time we found out that this is a quite a problem throughout the US. It's not and it's in every state. Uh it's just been that the reason it's America's dirty secret is because we have not given ourselves permission to talk about it. Plus there are regulations in place to silence people if they speak out cuz they feel they can be cited if they are a if it's if it's a town with a failing system, they're afraid to speak out because they're afraid of federal or state regulators trying to force them to fix something they don't have the money to repair it's the same problems that the families were were in individually and and that's why I think that it's it's continued to grow uh across the u s It's one of the factors and the other factor is uh the water tables are rising in a lot of areas and where water is involved it is it is certainly um causing these systems to fail. They're failing in places like Miami. Uh, They're they're failing throughout the U.S. And and we have to deal with with our current reality. So it's a bigger problem. And it's potentially that public health bomb that's ticking that could eventually explode if we don't deal with it and come up with technologies to treat wastewater better.
0: So why isn't water and sewage a public utility for all Americans?
1: That's a great question, because I, th- I believe it's a human right. It should be, but, but apparently we've gotten to the the place where we don't think about the public good anymore. We are only concerned about profit-making ma- schemes, even when the profit-making schemes are not in the best interest of the entire public. I was told recently that water utilities are more concerned about selling water because it's profitable than they are about wastewater treatment because it's not. Wow. So as long as we have those type of mindsets influencing policy around who gets wastewater treatment and who doesn't, then of course the public will always be in jeopardy of the next potential pandemic coming from disease because we're not treating human waste adequately.
0: Absolutely. I read that one in five Americans who are mostly rural, that Sewage is is not a public utility, and that they're paying up to six thousand dollars up front plus ongoing maintenance for the septic tanks. Is is that right?
1: Oh, it's, it's more than that. We we have recently um, we just paid help one person who paid six thousand dollars to repair a failing septic system. Wow. Uh, one person we we actually helped him. He his system was failing because we did a case study on how old his system was, why it was failing. And it cost six thousand dollars just to repair it uh in another situation where a woman had lived in her home for seventeen years, her system had failed, and the system that she needed when we called engineers out to actually look at it because she had been given an estimate of anywhere from five to twenty five thousand dollars. So we called engineers that we had worked with, and they said that particular system was going to cost. $18,500 to, to repair. That doesn't include the cost of the engineering which we paid for. Wow. Because most families can't afford that. I mean, it's not just the actual uh, system itself. You got to actually have an engineer to come in and design it for a lot of these areas where these systems are failing. They're not taking just regular septic tanks. You think you put them in the ground and they work. That that does, It's not working like that anymore. Yeah. So, so consequently, um, it is more costly in a lot of these areas. And it's probably going to become even more costly. And what happens is once these systems are put in place, the liability, the manufacturer has no warranty, no service warranty to go along with it. In a lot of places it's not required. The liability is transferred to the homeowner. So if it fails, then they have to go back in pocket again and try to fix it. And that's part of the problem. Yeah. Wow. I'd love to talk about hookworm, the intestinal
0: blood-feeding parasite that we thought had been eradicated in the United States, but you found hookworm infections were extremely prevalent in your county due to the inadequate waste disposal. Talk to us about how you uncovered this problem.
1: Well, simply by listening to the local folk, I think that that's part of why we keep having these issues, because, you know, even in terms of division in this country, as people like to talk about and ask me about, we don't listen enough. But I listened to local people because I grew up listening to people that were elders and seeking guidance from folk who probably knew a lot more than I did because wisdom was so important. So in listening to people, when we did the House to House survey, we realized that people were also complaining about potential illnesses. And we noticed that a lot of people were sick and we couldn't figure out why. As a result of my own experience, uh, I was called to a site where there was wastewater on the ground just outside of the home and it was covered with uh this pit of raw sewage was covered with mosquitoes and i had on a dress mosquitoes bit my legs and and i i i mean so much so i had holes on and you can see through my hosiery the blood stains where they drew blood and i was concerned because i could see them sitting on top of human feces and whatnot that came out of the toilet and um it was after that my body broke out in a rash and I went to my doctor and I asked her, would she conduct, you know, blood tests to make sure that nothing was wrong with me? And the test came back negative. And that's when I started asking the question, is it possible? And I asked her, is it possible that there's something that that this I could have something that American doctors are not trained to look for because we don't even acknowledge that we have this problem?
0: The test and was that, negative because it was the wrong test.
1: It was the wrong test. And then from that, I, I read an op ed in the New York. Times that was written by Dr. Peter Hotez. And uh, I googled him, found his email address, wrote him, told him about my experience. We met, and that's how we did the hookworm study. He sent his parasitologist to Lowndes County, and we collected fecal soil, water, and blood samples. And in those samples, uh, we came came back with evidence of hookworm and other tropical parasites. And hookworm basically is a you know, an infection that is associated with inadequate wastewater treatment. Wow! And what are what are the symptoms of hookworm? You said the rash. Uh, the rash. Some of the symptoms that I've read. I'm not a doctor, but uh, <laughs> abdominal pain, diarrhea. Uh, a lot of people talked about diarrhea, anemia. Wow! Uh, was one is also uh, one of the symptoms as well. And the children too. Uh, we had a few children in our study. We didn't have a lot of children in the study that we did. Most of the people in our study were adults. In some cases, when we did the study, uh, the family wanted to have the children in the household tested too. But in children, it can actually stymie their, uh, their cognitive development and, and it could create problems for them in school. I would venture to say as well, uh, because of all the other healthcare disparities that exist in a place like Lowndes County, I think it makes them vulnerable for other kinds of infections as well. Because it has, you know, it weakens their immune system. Because my fear was when I heard about COVID, I was concerned about how it's going to impact people in Lowndes County. And Lowndes County ended up having the at the height of COVID, the highest death and infection rate in the state of Alabama per capita. And I'm sure that being exposed to the sewage was a factor. yeah. And, they're, and we're, they're still having funerals in Lowndes County from people that have died from COVID. It's tragic. Very. But it's a canary in the coal mine. Yeah. Because it probably amplifies so many other things when we don't have wastewater adequate wastewater treatment in place, whether it's in Lowndes County or Mount Vernon, New York. So when you did
0: the work around hookworm with The researchers, you got quite a bit of attention. Can you share some of the government officials and other leaders that caught word of your work and came to visit and started investing and helping?
1: First of all, there were a lot of people that would come to Montgomery to see the National Memorial to Peace and Justice. And the uh, museum, and they would call me and ask to go to Lowndes County. So a lot of philanthropists were the first to go. And then we also had people like Senator Cory Booker, Senator Bernie Sanders, Cat Taylor, who's the wife of Tom Steyer, Jane Fonda, and many others who came because they were just interested in seeing what they could do to help. We also had partnerships and collaborations with universities. Uh, The Franklin Humanities Institute at Duke University was one of our partners.
0: One of the takeaways about who you are that I got from your book was that you bring people together to solve big, messy problems. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what ultimately led you to do this work, and especially about your parents and how they've shaped your life's work.
1: Well, my parents were community activists and they didn't meet strangers. You know, we were always inviting, you know, people were coming to our homes or they would just stop by to talk to my parents, talk to my mother, talk to my father. They were um very engaged in the community. People would come to them to seek guidance. So a lot of, I guess, a lot of my technique that I developed was just by watching them and how welcoming they were and how they would listen before they spoke. And I learned that we have to listen and also to be able to talk to people. I saw my father talking to people that I used to wonder why he would have a conversation with them. But uh, some of the people that were his arch rivals, you know, they were they had different views on how to approach the issues of the community, but they had respect for each other in the end. So I try to find common ground. I think that there's no one who believes that it's okay for wastewater to be in mean, human waste to be just outside of a person's home. The question is, how do we solve it? And that's where we have the differences. So consequently, um, I just learn how to reach out and talk to people from all over you know and plus i think i had to give a little credit to my time in the military because in the military you're thrown together with a whole lot of people in basic training that you've never met before Mm -hmm. and after they put you in that uniform you all look the same yeah (laughs) different backgrounds we just have to figure out how to work together as a team
0: that's beautiful
1: (laughs) yeah and, and i think that that's part of uh I don't talk about it as much, but I think that was part of what helped to shape my orientation toward how I approach and deal with, with other people and bring together people from diverse backgrounds and philosophies, political philosophies sometimes. And you were a teacher? Yes, I was also a teacher. And in teaching, you know, when I, I've always been creative. When I was a teacher, one of the things I found out that it, I I... When I listened to my students and found out what they liked to do, and I used that to help inspire them and encourage them to do well in the classroom, that worked for me. For an example, I was teaching at the time when hip hop was was so popular and everybody wanted to be a hip hop artist at that time. So in order to inspire my students, I took them to the hip hop conference at Howard University. You know, here I was a teacher, <laughs> an older teacher, but at that I wasn't a young teacher. <laughs> but you know, I was, I'm going meeting people like Tupac and People from diggable planets, and, <laughs> you know, uh, Heavy D and and folk like that, because I was the teacher that would take the students to places that to learn about the things that they wanted to know about. But they had to earn the right to get there. So it's almost like tricking them into learning. Right. Yeah. Then, of course, the other thing that I did when I was a teacher, I, I took them on the march from Selma to Montgomery. I write about it in the book. And how they had the opportunity to talk with people who were at part of the original march. And I still hear from a lot of those students now who are in their 40s who tell me how that trip to Selma and having that experience has inspired them to be uh, involved, to do more than vote, to actually to go and volunteer and be part of campaigns. So, you ah. know, those are the kinds of things that I hope to do today, but doing it differently around wastewater.
0: We all face naysayers in healthcare. Can you tell me about the biggest roadblock that you faced in your work?
1: I think the biggest roadblock that I faced in my work, uh, there are a couple. One is the historical inequities that are baked into our system that discriminates against people of color, it discriminates against poor people, and it discriminates against rural communities. People just feel like rural people should choose to move to a city so they wouldn't have to deal with on-site problems. But they are also taxpayers, and a large part of the U.S. is unincorporated and rural. But I've also found that wastewater, more often than not in many areas, has uh, an inequity baked into it that was inspired by racial covenants about where black people and people of color or Jewish people could settle at the time. And those lands as folk that were trapped there and couldn't move because they were not the best places to live uh, are the ones that are having a lot of the infrastructure issues and there was never a real sustained investment in building resilient infrastructure in those places if I- if any infrastructure was placed there at all then of course, the other problem is uh what i what I'm seeing now are people that are not accountable, that design these failing systems and sell them to people that don't have a lot of influence, that are forced into situations to get these this infrastructure that they know is going to fail because they lived through it before and nobody listens to them. That's a big obstacle to finding a solution because we've allowed the people that have made money. I mean, where's the scorecard to say that if you're an engineering firm and you design a system and it failed, where where is the accountability there? There generally is not. If they're politically connected, they'll get the next contract too. They make more money the more it breaks, right? Exactly. They'll get the, and they get the next contract. And in the cases of poor towns like Uniontown, Alabama, doesn't want to deal with the the contractor who got the original contract, and they actually went to court to force them to. To deal with this, the same contractor again, and the judge just ruled that the town should get out of the way. They're not even listening to the people in the town. Instead of having democracy, the system is being used to force people to have relationships with uh, private business people who they feel is not in their best interest. They should have a choice. And that's part of the problem. And until we solve those issues, we're going to always be forced to accept so-called solutions that don't work without any kind of input from the community themselves because they're the ones that ultimately have to deal with the failures and they're not making any money off of it. But the onus of maintaining it after it's put there is, is passed on to them.
0: We'll be right back. After the break. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie
1: that. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. I mean, why? Why is all this injustice being going let to go on, and nobody's being held responsible? They just simply the government is simply taking advantage of the poor people, and then still not doing anything about it. It is unfair. Where is the justice? So we
0: have. Doctors Without Borders that support communities outside the U.S. that lack medical infrastructure. Is there anything like that, like water engineers without borders to support these communities that can do work in the field that isn't taking advantage of the homeowners?
1: I think the big problem is, is that a lot of people that are coming in proposing solutions they'll never put in their own homes. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. And I think the engineering paradigm needs to shift and change where the people that are proposing the solutions that are working on the solutions are the people that are there, but uh, until there's some accountability or guardrails put in place, that if you design something that don't work and it comes back into Ms. Charlie May's house, that Ms. Charlie May does not have to go out and get a loan to fix it, that the person who designed it and put it there will have to do it. Absolutely. That that would raise the standards. And I think ultimately that's where we need to go to in order to get what's needed and have some, some type of equity in the process. And have some liability if they get sick due to failures of their system. Exactly. And that's not happening right now, because what is happening, it seems like the system is rigged to support people that have influence and money, but the people that are the victims of it, that ultimately, whatever diseases that manifest, there won't stop in those communities. It'll start there first. We see that with COVID. But right now, as long as people are they have a profit motive. As long as they're profiting from it, they don't care about the, the the outcome. And the reason that I keep pushing at this is because the people that are impacted by it are my relatives, whether they're my relatives that I know that are in uh, Lowndes County, whether they're in South Carolina, whether they're in Texas, whether they're in California, wherever. I'm seeing people that I have more in common with than not that are being impacted by this. Yeah
0: so we're not holding the septic companies accountable for their work yet we're and tell me if this is true you know we're criminalizing the impact of having a shoddy system for the residents that are living without you know any working
1: water Well, they, they have working water. They just don't have a working when it, when they flush the toilet, you know, yeah. yeah. When they flush the toilet, the problem is what happens when it, once it leaves the toilet. And that's the part that, people generally don't see or think about. Mm -hmm. So yes, people are being criminalized. We we actually have a a year-long project with The Guardian where we're documenting wastewater issues across the U.S. because there's no real clear database on that. Mm. So we're documenting that. And in the process, we have found that some of the people that have spoken out about it, especially elected officials, have been visited by regulators finding them after they've spoken out. And I think that that's another part of the the process that is punitive and that creates these issues that continue. And it's the way it's being used and who is being used against. It's it's very, very similar to what we saw in Lowndes County, where in in Alabama, they used the criminal justice system to penalize folk who cannot afford the remedy that's being proposed, and as a result, it forces people not to talk about it, and they're stuck. We we have those of those inequities that are baked in that I talked about earlier that we have to get at and 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 unearth them, because otherwise they're gonna always be there, and they always tend to to infect anything that we try to do in terms of long term remedies and making sure that everybody has the type of access to water and sanitation that they should have. I think it's the kind of mentality that created a flint in the first place that they thought it was okay to move the water source to a place that had chemicals that would lift out the lead in the pipes and end up poisoning the community, uh, you know, because of money. They felt that it was okay to do that. The human life was, was not valuable. And we have to look at it from the perspective that everybody has a right to live and water is life. And so is sanitation.
0: It's, clearly a, a public health crisis. Are you getting support from the healthcare
1: community? A lot of people from the healthcare community have reached out to me and we're working on collaborating through our organization, the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice. Uh, we're also looking to, to collaborate with the uh, engineering schools uh they have also reached out and, and want to help and we've we've gotten people reaching out from around around the world it has it is a global issue it's not just a US issue i think if we can lead on this and provide ways out uh to help other people it could be something that can be incorporated and used around the world absolutely
0: yeah it's it's such a multifactorial problem with impacts uh, really across education health um and so it's it seems like you're the right person to really lead this cuz you're so good at bringing everyone together um do you think that through this work uh, of the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice you're going to help are you're going to fix it is it is that on the horizon and what's it really going to take to solve this problem for Americans
1: well, I think that ultimately what it's going to take is a change in the engineering paradigm where we have impacted people sitting at the table to help design solutions. Because what we often do uh, is in the case, I was contacted by a person from a public health school, a major public health school in the Northeast. And she contacted me because she was working with a group in the South. They had been brought in by EPA because the this parish in Louisiana had a failing system and the EPA came to the conclusion that the system was failing because the people didn't know how to maintain it. So they reached out to the public health officials to say, "Look, we need to tra- we need to design a curriculum to educate them about how to train, how to how to maintain these systems." Which is a common narrative when these systems break, and so these people, that's how they transfer responsibility to the individuals or to the towns. So I asked them and they said that the community the, reached out to me because, you know, I talk about community engagement and they said, how do we engage the community? Because we want them to adapt our curriculum and we want to educate them so they can better, they can better uh, maintain the system. I said, how do you know that that's the problem with the system? Hmm. Have you asked them? They said, no. I said, have they asked them? They said, we don't know. I said, so at this point you want to come and And tell You want to go into this community, you don't know these people, and tell them the reason their system is failing is because they're not educated. Instead of finding out from them why the system is failing and together coming up with a way to deal with it. That's what's wrong with this paradigm. Mm -hmm. And what we're hoping to do is to change that and to show that there are ways in which we can work together. But we cannot discount local voices it cannot be just engineers only because the engineers are designing systems that when they leave they fail they're not resilient and the people are left holding the bag so what we hope to do is to flip the engineering paradigm we're actually the center for rural enterprise and environmental justice is actually uh going to start a project that we will announce this summer where we're collaborating bringing together Some of the best minds to create new ways to treat wastewater, and in doing that, uh, we're going to bring together people like people from the space from NASA, as well as people from the communities themselves who've been impacted by this, and 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 coming up with designs Mm -hmm. that could work because that we never we never have people engaged in those we 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 tested on them. But we want to change that and we want them to sit at the table to help develop something that we think that will work. And I think that's a whole new concept, listening to the people themselves and engaging them in, in the front end instead of bringing them in, in the back end when they want to make them accept these, you know, these desires that are not working.
0: Yeah. Bringing all the stakeholders together versus having, you know, the, the traditional way is kind of top down. We know best. We're going to solve this for you. Um, you know, with the, the savior complex versus really bringing everyone together to truly understand. And it sounds like listening is, is so important to you and core to how you approach these problems is becoming intimate with them yourself. So I think that's a great lesson for everyone that's listening is this is really the best place to start um, if you want to really help solve a problem is just by sitting down and opening your heart and ears to the, the people who are really, um, you know, facing the problem that you're trying to solve.
1: And ultimately, it impacts the, the public health, because once we find these solutions, then that's one less thing we have to worry about we can all benefit from it because one of the things that they're doing in some places around the country they're testing wastewater for covid. Oh wow.
0: Wow. I didn't know that. Are they finding it?
1: Oh yeah, there there's an engineer that we work with that's uh, in his lab. He's doing a lot of his name is Dr. Karthik Chandra and he's at Columbia University. That's how in some some of the campuses that Uh, Were able to open, and the way they were able to open was to control COVID. Was that they were actually down to the dorms testing the wastewater for COVID. So if there was a COVID infection uh, that was found there, uh, they could try to isolate it so it wouldn't spread to other parts of the campus. I also received an email recently from an engineer in Georgia who wrote me about a person who worked in the sewers who ended up getting COVID and she thinks there's a possibility that he was exposed at work and he was raising eight boys by himself. And now the boys are orphaned because COVID killed him. He had oh, asthma, and the complications of it took his life. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Wow. So there hasn't been a direct connection between whether or not you can catch COVID if it's in sewer, but we don't know. Yeah. Cause nobody's looking at it. Yeah. But we do know that one reason we wash our hands, who would go to a restaurant where people were preparing food, going into the bathroom and not washing their hands? Most people wouldn't do that. Uh, I've seen restaurants closed because their toilets backed up in the restaurant. We cannot separate the fact that this is a health issue that immediately affects the people that are exposed to it. But ultimately, we look at the intersection of climate change, and with it getting warmer and warmer and warmer, that some of these illnesses or diseases or parasites that could not thrive here before will become commonplace if we don't find solutions soon.
0: Yeah. So the what were previously known as tropical diseases have made their way to the U.S.
1: Yes. I've actually been contacted by veterinarians that are finding hookworm and stray dogs in Alaska. Oh my gosh, wow. Wow. Well, I'm just so impressed
0: with your work and your just a wealth of knowledge on this topic. This, again, this complex topic that touches public health and environmental health and social justice. How I'm going to be making a donation to your organization, which I'm excited to do. How can um listeners support your work monetarily or as volunteers or any other way they can support the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice?
1: Well, they can go to our website uh and they could donate there. If someone is interested in potentially interning with us, they can reach out through our website and send information to us. I'm also accessible. Uh, through social media, I do read what people send me. And if I don't respond, I can get someone from our staff to respond. And our goal is if if you are living in an area where you know that this is a problem in terms of wastewater treatment, uh, I'm talking about what happens when you flush your toilet. So if if you know that there there are three things we're looking for, we, we're we engaged in a year-long project with The Guardian where we're documenting this across the U.S. and we're asking people to self-report. You can self-report it directly to us, to The Guardian, where uh, people are straight-piping. If, if you are aware of that or you are straight piping, it, this is just for a database that we're putting together. It's not to identify people unless people want a story done about it. Second, uh, either straight piping, failing septic systems, or failing centralized or decentralized wastewater systems. And we're finding that uh, people are reporting like the first story was on Centerville, Illinois, which is outside of St. Louis. And then the, the second story was on Mount Vernon, New York. Uh, which is in you know in Westchester County, New York. So that that's how you can help us. I mean, the, sharing information because we understand the value of information through listening to people in the community. And if you like to donate, then you can go to the website and do that.
0: And I highly recommend reading Catherine's book "Waste: One Woman's Fight Against America's Dirty Secret." It was a very eye-opening book to read, and so well-written. I really enjoyed. I feel like I got to know you through the book. So thank if, um, you. <laughs> if you're listening, I and you know, inspired by what you learned today, and you haven't yet read her book, um, go ahead and buy it from your local bookstore. Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Heart of Healthcare podcast. If you liked today's show. Be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare with Hallie Teko is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producers are Holly Techco and Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Brianna Seely and Andrew McDowell. It is mixed and edited by Brianna Seely. Our music is by Utah. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T,
1: dot com.